Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the temple. I'm not sure how what would be the word for terrified and excited? Do you know? All I know is we were both of those things that morning and that my feet ran faster than sandals ought to take you. But we had to tell everyone what happened. After Jesus was crucified, it was all over. I mean, were we wrong about him? We must have been because Jesus was dead. So we hid. We hid in fear. And then on Sunday, a group of us women went to go prepare his body with ointments and spices. It was the least we could do, even if none of it made sense. For three days, the longest three days of my life, we were afraid. Oh, but on Sunday... My head raced faster than my feet as we bolted from the tomb. The disciples wouldn't believe us when we tried to tell them. A massive sealed tombstone moved. Roman guards silenced. Blinding angels. Unnecessary grave clothes now neatly folded and lay silent. As if they had a secret to tell. If a picture's worth a thousand words, then an empty tomb holds a thousand promises. Because, do you see what this means? We were hoping for a Messiah to come and restore Israel. Jesus exceeded all expectations. He was the Messiah that we couldn't contain. We were just hoping too small. It means that... Whatever's been taken from us, God can restore. He lives so that we can live too. Our greatest roadblock, it's been removed because not even the doors of death can shut out the certainty of life in Jesus. It means our greatest enemy has been defeated. So you tell me, what rival could stand against him. Kings, presidents, the powers that be, whatever's to come and whatever has been, the highest of highs and lowest of lows, nothing can make that grave less empty. Nothing. No temple veil, no checkered past, no hellish lie can keep the mortal from putting on immortality. He softened the sting of death and swallowed our defeat in victory. You know, 
I don't have all the answers. But standing in that empty tomb with those discarded grave clothes, those secret-keeping pieces of cloth, well, the secret's out now. He's not dead. He's not missing. He hasn't been taken away. He's alive. Jesus left death and that tomb behind. If there's a way to be had, it's through him. If there's hope in this world, his name is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, our Messiah, my Messiah. Yes, Jesus, he's alive. The secret is out. Good morning. It's what we celebrate, an empty tomb. This idea that Jesus is alive is one of these things that is the most personal thing for many of us all throughout throughout the centuries from the very time of Christ till now. It's a very personal experience, a very personal thing. And this bodily resurrection that we celebrate today is actually at the very center of the Christian faith. From the very earliest of time, it was a hin- the hinge point that held everything together. The entire New Testament is woven with this idea of New Testament as the meaning behind all of it that makes life worth living, that makes Jesus worth following. And without the idea of resurrection, the entire Christian faith falls apart. All of its doctrines, all of its beliefs completely fall apart. It is so important that even the Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's that important. Faith in Jesus rises and falls on what we celebrate today, which is resurrection. And so whether you believe in that today, or whether you're still seeking, whether you're still uncertain, or whether you just, you're even a skeptic and say, how can that be? It's not even true. Let me ask you a question. If someone came up to you today and asked you, asked you the question, what would you say, what do you think about Jesus being resurrected from the dead? And, and what does being resurrected mean? What would, what would be your answer to them? Would it be uh, Jesus rose from the dead, or, or that's, just, that's just a fairy tale? Did he really rise and uh, come back to life with a physical body? Or, or was it something more like resurrection is just this code word within Christianity uh, for Jesus' spirit somehow being alive or something else after death? Or, or is it a feeling or a belief akin to the idea of how people might talk about, um, how you might talk about your dead grandmother or your dead mama or somebody who you feel like her spirit is still with you? And, and even that idea of her still being with you could mean many different things. For some people, it means uh, it's almost like a little guardian angel. Her spirit's with me watching over my shoulder. And for others of you, it's just your way of saying, man, she had such an impact on my life. I still talk like her, think like her, and make decisions like her. And it's almost your way of honoring her continued influence in your life. Or is it like uh, Scott Korb, a New York University professor, believes that resurrection is simply a metaphor? A metaphor for life, sometimes we just have these low points where it feels like death. And we eventually bounce back out of it and maybe learn something from it and life takes on new meaning and vitality again and we respond to the other side. And it really has nothing to do with a dead body coming back to life. Or, 
Or is resurrection just simply the greatest hoax in all of history? See, regardless of what you believe on those issues, and I suspect we have lots of different beliefs and probably lots of different assumptions about what that means today among us, regardless of what you believe about that, almost all of us are enthralled with the idea of who Jesus is, right? We love when we read the eyewitness accounts who who he's recorded to be in, and, and it exceeds all of our wildest expectations. I mean, we get to see this winsome, lovingly, pursuing, patient God who goes and, 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 and meets all of our longings and, and defines for us a pursuit of the highest human ideals that we could ever imagine of. I mean, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, almost everybody looks at Jesus and goes, those are great ideals. And that's a great person to study and think about. Most people love who the Gospels portray Jesus to be. I mean, why wouldn't they? We see the stories of him, of, of him healing people. And we, we long for that. We spend the sto- see the stories of him spending time with sinners and being patient and kind where people would normally reject him. And we see him forgiving people. And we see all these things. And a picture is truly worth a thousand words when we read the text of the Bible. And it means so much to us. But... Those thousand words are still just words and empty words at that if Jesus didn't empty that tomb and rise from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, everything in the Bible is a myth. And it's no more important to us than uh, Tom Sawyer's Huck Finn or J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter movies. It has no more meaning to us than that. But if he rose from the dead... The picture of the tomb is a picture worth a thousand promises, as the drama said. It's a thousand promises because it means that Jesus, what Jesus did and what Jesus taught and what he promised is real. And it's accessible to you and I and all that we're doing. It means that we, like thieving Zacchaeus, when we do something that's wrong or mean and and we disdain ourselves for it, we can still have hope that we can be saved and we can be better. Or it's like the woman caught in adultery. She can have hope that she could one day be loved for who she is instead of used as an object. And she can walk free of the shame and leave that shame and guilt in the past. Or it's the hope of the ordinary fishermen who followed Jesus that that, that we can be like them, knowing a, a life of meaning and purpose, that our life is more than just crunching numbers. Our life is more than just solving another dispute, putting another organizational chart together, making another sale. Our life can be more meaningful than just another load of laundry. We can bring his life and his meaning to life. And it all hinges on Jesus and an empty tomb and whether that tomb is empty because he was resurrected. And yet throughout all of history, even in the church today, there's many times misinterpretations of what resurrection means. We have all sorts of different ideas of what it means. So today, in just the next few short minutes, I want to walk through uh, looking at a definition of what resurrection actually meant in the Bible and what it means today. And and I, and I don't want to necessarily prove, because I don't think we can conclusively prove that Jesus did rise from the dead, but there is an awful lot of historical evidence out there that makes us at least remove some barriers we would have to that belief. And then I want to talk about how all of that can make a difference for us today. So, as noted just a minute ago, we, we all have different views of 
resurrection. Anything from a metaphor to a spiritual being or to a, to a hoax to a bodily resurrection. But in the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, whether you were Greek or Roman or Jewish, this word resurrection was not misunderstood at all. It was extremely clear. It was a word only used for the idea of someone coming back to life in bodily form with a physical body. Whether you believed it or not, you understood that's what the word meant. There's no, there's no nuances to it. And in the Jewish culture of the day, they had the idea that the Messiah was going to come and set everything right. And then when everything was set right, everybody was going to be resurrected to new bodies, incorruptible. Death was going to be done away with. Sin was going to be done away with. We were all going to be fine. But Jesus comes and Jesus dies. And they didn't expect the Messiah to die. And then Jesus is resurrected from the dead, but everybody else isn't. And the disciples are probably confused because they've been raised in this Jewish tradition of what that would look like. And, and, but very quickly we see in the early church that resurrection took on not only this meaning of one day we would be resurrected from life and the fact that Jesus is resurrected makes that even more sure that we can be free of this body of disease and sin someday. But... It also brought tremendous meaning to life now because it inaugurated his kingdom power being present with us now. And we get to be a part of this mission to bring his good life to others through us. And interestingly enough, uh, during the first three centuries of the Christian church, the only people that were persecuted, N.T. Wright notes in his book that's 740 pages long. Do you think that's long enough? Should I cover that whole thing this morning on resurrection? He wrote a 740-page book on resurrection. He notes that in the first three centuries, the only people persecuted and thrown to the lions were the ones that believed in the bodily resurrection. The, the, the Gnostics, the heretics, the people that believed only in a, in a metaphorical idea or some spiritualized idea, but none of them were persecuted. That was a completely acceptable idea in that time frame. So that's too much for today to go into his whole book. So how do we know the resurrection is not just a hoax? That it's real, that it's true. And for this, I'm going to borrow uh, some material, an outline from Lee Strobel, who uses four E's. He got three from somebody else and added another E to it as far as four E's of evidence for the resurrection. And I, you, know, you know me, I never do alliteration. So if you like alliteration, this may be the last time we have a message with alliteration. And so enjoy the four E's today. The first E is simply this, execution. There had to be a death an execution in order for there to be a resurrection. And it could be one of those rare times you get to hear about where everybody is afraid that it's going to be you someday where you die. Everybody thinks you die, but you go to the morgue and all of a sudden you wake up alive on the cold platter in the morgue, you know, and we've heard, you know, the rumors of stories like that. It couldn't be something like that. And on this account of Jesus' death, there's essentially no disagreement among secular scholars, Jewish, Roman, Christian, whoever it is. And the reason for that confidence that he actually did die was the fact that we have five sources outside of the Bible from the very first century indicating that Jesus actually did die. I mean, most historians are really happy when they study ancient history to find one or two texts. We find five outside of the Bible from people like Josephus, uh, the the famous uh, Jewish Roman historian of the first century, and Tacitus, even the Talmud. The first century writings for the Jews basically mention and say that Jesus died. A current day atheist historian, Gerd, Gerd Ludman, 
uh, argues, who argues consistently against Jesus and has written books against him, says that Jesus' death is indisputable. There's not even any question about that. The second E is this idea of early. And it's just simply this idea that the earlier a text is actually written down, the closer to the event that it's actually written down, the more likely it is to be true. And that's a a common test among all historians and legal experts and when they're trying to research things to find out what's true. And we know that Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 A.D. And by the early 50s, we have this creed, clearly communicated all throughout Christianity, written down, putting resurrection at the center of the faith. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul writes this. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's name in Aramaic, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also. So, less than 25 years... After Jesus' death and resurrection, this creed is clearly in writing and being widely circulated, and we have that as proof. That's really fast. That's really fast. I mean, think about it. The first biography on Alexander the Great wasn't written for 400 years. This is just 25 years later. And notice what Paul says. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. And we know from other documents in the Bible and elsewhere that Paul uh, was about two to three years after his encounter with Jesus, which would have been about 34 to 36 A.D., Paul meets the apostles. And that's where he received this creed, which means less than four to six years after the resurrection, this was already a clear core teaching of the church. In fact, you can look even earlier in Acts and see it only 40 days after the resurrection being a very clear centerpiece of everything about the Christian faith. This idea of resurrection is central within weeks. See, there's no time gap between the event and the wide acceptance by thousands of people of this truth. Now, why is this significant? There's a guy named A.N. Sherwin-White who is an Oxford professor and one of the leading historians of how legend has developed over the course of history. And he says that there is no example in history of any single legend emerging in less than two generations and most of the time much longer than that after the actual events happen. Why is that true? Well, it's simply this. If it tries to emerge earlier on, it's way too easy for an eyewitness to stand up and say, I was there and this didn't happen. But in Jesus' case, this widespread belief takes hold immediately lending credibility to the fact that it could not be legend, that it was most likely reality. The thirty is this, empty. You have to have an empty tomb. You can't have a body in the tomb. Otherwise, it would be as simple as taking Jesus' body and praying it down Main Street in Jerusalem and proving that he hadn't risen from the dead. 
which is actually exactly what happened to several other messianic figures over the course of a couple hundred years from uh, 50 years or so before Jesus' life to about 100 years after. There were a number of messianic figures that arose and they were all killed in battle or they were all arrested, publicly tortured, and their bodies were hung out for public display. Why? Because the Romans and the Jews needed to prove that they were dead and needed to take away all divine authority that this person would have in the eyes of their followers. So that was all done publicly. The message of Jesus tells us that there's no body. Nobody to be found at all. We don't see that. We see an empty tomb. If the tomb is not empty, this news story wouldn't have exploded within weeks like it did. In fact, there's another test that historians put to all documents. They have what they call the test of embarrassment. And what they say is if somebody's trying to make a case for themselves, if someone's trying to establish their reputation, they're not going to include something in the text that is embarrassing or that takes away the credibility of selling their case. And therefore, historians, when they find a document that actually has something embarrassing in or something that would take away credibility if it were presented in that way, they say, well, this must be more of an eyewitness count and true because they're not trying to sell it. They're just trying to tell the facts. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel accounts. We see the fact that the first people who went to the empty tomb were women. And among the Jews and the Romans of the first century, a woman's testimony was not valid in court. In fact, the Talmud actually flat out says, do not listen to a woman's testimony at all. Um, if the gospel writers wanted to sell their case, they wouldn't have included the women in the account because it damaged their case among the culture they were trying to reach, which lends the credibility to the fact that what they're doing is actually accurately reporting the facts as they happened and letting the chips fall where they may. And the other question about the empty tomb is, well, couldn't Jesus' body have been stolen? But the reality is that no one had motive and means to do this. I mean, the Romans had no motive, even though they had the means to do it. They didn't want this guy people thinking he was alive. The Jewish leaders are the ones who asked him to be put to death. They have no motive to do anything there. Even the Jewish zealots, the rebels who were trying to overthrow the Romans, didn't have either a motive, maybe they had the means, but not the motive to do this. Because they had already experienced a number of times over the past 50 years or so, rebellions that they had led and their leaders who were their messiahs had been killed and that was the end of them. And they were used to somebody dying and that being the end. And then they just wait until somebody else came up. There was no idea of trying to steal a body and create a myth of somebody being resurrected. That wasn't even in their thought. And, and besides, even though I don't think Jesus was a pacifist in his teaching, he made some very strong comments, especially during the last few weeks of his life, about not using violence. Why would the ones who wanted to use violence want to take this guy? There's just no motive. There's no... There's no and, and then the disciples. I mean, they didn't have the means. They were a bunch of fishermen. They didn't have the means or the tools or the weapons to go against an, a Roman guard of the type that was posted there. And, and they certainly didn't have the money to bribe them. They were all poor. They had nothing. See, stealing Jesus' body, there's no motive and no means that is even remotely accessible to what would have been a reality to make that case. But empty tomb on its own doesn't prove anything. So let's look at the next 
E, which is eyewitnesses. Between the text we read earlier and the Gospels, uh, we have uh, Jesus appearing on at least a dozen different instances to over 500 people. And those people he uh, appeared to weren't just supporters. Many of them were skeptics and doubters, and, and he appeared to them anyway. I mean, the eyewitnesses weren't all followers. James, the brother of Jesus, was a doubter. He did not believe in Jesus. In fact, we see in one instance him going against Jesus in the Gospels, and yet he, after the resurrection, becomes a follower, becomes the head of the Jerusalem church, and is actually martyred for his faith in AD 62. And the reason that's significant is not just because of his belief in Jesus. It's significant because his leadership in that role was nothing like any other uh, example of a Jewish messianic transition in leadership in all of history during that time period. The, tr- the tradition was if a, a Jewish messianic leader arose and they were killed, that their family members were often asked to take over, th- over for them and take on that title and that role. But we see James taking on belief in Jesus but refusing to take that designation and instead saying he is the Messiah. He's the one who is alive. It's not me. I'm not taking that. That's something that's completely unheard of before this. And then we see a guy named Saul. I mean, Saul was the best educated, one of the best educated person, people of his day. His teacher was the lead scholar of politics and theology it would have been his degrees would have been like having PhDs from Harvard and Oxford and Yale and he was the best trained guy and, and he was leading the charge to persecute the early church, believing that he was doing good for God. He didn't feel guilty about it. He felt righteous and pure and justified in what he was doing. Saul was not psychologically prepped to have a vision of Jesus and an encounter, and yet he does have this encounter with God, with Jesus, that changes him completely, and he changes his name to Paul, and he later becomes who we know as the Apostle Paul and the writer of most of the New Testament, and he tells us in our text today that over 500 people saw Jesus resurrected in the body at one time. Coordinating a lie with that large of a group, can you imagine how difficult that is? to coordinate a lie with that big of a group so that 3,000 people 40 days later would begin to follow and it would burgeon within the first year to tens of thousands of people following and, 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 and you don't see anything, uh, you don't see any eyewitness coming forward in any kind of historical encounter with the Romans or the Jews, who would have been begging for an eyewitness to come forward to put down this rebellion, this thing that was against Caesar as God and this thing that was against the Jewish religion. They would have been begging for that, but you don't see an eyewitness come forward to counter and say, oh, this was a lie. None of them do. Now, think about the probability of, if it was a lie, keeping that all together so that nobody would come forward with that large of group. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but... That's a pretty low probability. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. If there's something to be gained by having a lie, though, right? It doesn't mean anything. But the problem is there's nothing to be gained here. The only thing that the disciples gained was being rejected by their family and friends, being persecuted by, their, by the Jews, being persecuted by the Romans. None of them got rich off of this. All they got was heartache and trouble for it. 
Even Gerd Ludmann, the atheist uh, that I, historian that I mentioned earlier before, he says this. He says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. So, why is he still an atheist? I mean, because that's what he says, actually. He says, well, they all had hallucination. That's what he says. So that's like saying my wife had a dream of us hiking at our favorite place on Mount Rainier with all the wildflowers and the snow-capped peaks and the, and the wild animals and the, the streams. And, the, and she wakes up at night having that dream and she says, Honey, I'm having this dream. Would you go back to sleep with me and have that dream with me? And let's hold, our, hold my hand while we're having that dream together. Wouldn't that be nice? We'd save so much on vacations, wouldn't we? I mean, we could just, we could just wake up and, and dream about going to the Florida Keys or you could have your kids jump in bed with you and dream about Disneyland or forget spending the two $3,000 to take them there for a week or $5,000 to take them there for a week. And I've, I've wondered actually if that would be really nice because I, even from childhood, I've wanted to do the teacups at Disneyland but I can't do them without getting sick. Could I do that in a dream and not get sick? That would be absolutely wonderful to do that. We would all be richer. We'd be able to take weekly, if not daily, vacations and just it would be awesome. But no, hallucinations are an individual thing. They're not a group thing. Dr. Gary Collins, a psychologist, says 500 people having the same exact hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. I mean, really. See, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the resurrection is a high likelihood historical reality. See, it's not, Jesus didn't just claim to be the Messiah. He backed it up by dying to fulfill the requirements of justice for our sin, for the sin of the world, carrying it on himself, taking it upon himself, for us rejecting him, him, our creator, as our creator and not submitting to him. He takes that upon himself and he rises from the dead to prove that he was and is still God. And he gives us a hope that that dream of one day us being free of sin and us one day having bodies that are without disease and free of sin, that that's a good promise that we can trust in. But more than that, it's to give us a picture that's worth a thousand promises for today, for life right now that we can experience Him, that we can know Him, that we can live in His love and His power and understand how He wants to lead us and communicate with us right now. We can, you know, we, we can talk about the celebration of all of this evidence that we've talked about. And you could go read N.T.'s 740-page book. You could go read any of the books by Strobel and you could really enjoy that and that's really cool and fun to do. But there's nothing more that can prove the power of the resurrection then the story of Jesus being alive and active today, is it? Him being real in your life and my life. Like just the simple time I blew out my ankle for the sixth time and I'm laying on the ground and guys pray for me and I feel God's presence coming. The pain melts away and I walk away pain-free. Or my dad's getting, freed, getting healed of, of, of permanent heart damage from six heart attacks at age 32 and he's, what, 88 now and he's never had any problems and God touches him and... Uh, or my friend, a friend of Wendy and I's, who, who was sexually abused as a child, and she grew up and as an early adult started to sexually prostitute herself and act out in that way. And God 
touched her, found her, and brought so much healing that she's married with kids in a wonderful marriage, in a wonderful life, feeling so much good stuff going on. Or, or, or the friend of mine who sensed God leading him from one profession to a completely different profession. He was feeling like God was calling him into politics where he, where he had no experience in the past. And, and God said, I want you to do it in a different state where you have no connections. And four years later, he's a state senator. And two years after that, he's the minority leader. And because God is alive, and he wants to speak into our lives at the point of our careers, at the point of our family, at the point of our disease. He wants to be real to us in every moment and lead us and be a part of our life because God is alive and speaks and leads because he's alive. He is resurrected from the dead. See, the message of the resurrection isn't just about Jesus. It's about you and it's about me knowing and experiencing and learning to follow this risen Savior and Lord, this Jesus who appeared to hundreds, continues to bring people like Lee Strobel, this atheist journalism, journal, journalism legal scholar from Yale who, who, who went on a two-year investigative journey to prove Jesus was not real using the best of journalism and legal evidence gathering and came to the conclusion that it was likely that Jesus was resurrected from the dead because there was more historical proof for that than most every other judgment we have in a courtroom or almost every other article we have written. But it wasn't just that. It came to the point where he also experienced Jesus for himself. It wasn't just the facts. He knew him for himself. And just like the disciples who experienced a resurrected Lord, out of that experience of Jesus today, we can have that same experience and it can completely reorient our lives and our perspective, bringing healing to our lives, bringing growth, bringing passion to our lives, bringing to us, each and every one of us, a mission that gives us a mission worth dying for, that we're willing to lay down our lives for, a mission that inspires us to become the most generous people on the planet because He was so outrageously generous. The kindness of His love places a claim on our lives. I hear many of you commenting, on a regular basis of how you're learning to experience Him more and more. From your finances, to your marriage, to your jobs, to, to hearing Him answer prayers, to being healing and experiencing Him in your relationships. But today I want to I share with you uh, the story of Michael Hendren and how he has experienced God becoming more alive to him this last year. My name is Michael Hendren, and this is my story. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, one that was exposed to faith and the importance of relationship with God. And my interpretation of that when I was young was to please people. The older I got, the more I found myself looking for that affirmation that I was doing things right by the, because the people around me reacted to me the way I wanted them to. When I got into high school and college, that basically made me become a just part of the crowd. And, and I would just get involved in things that I, I know I shouldn't, that were sinful. But because I wasn't disciplined enough to get myself out of them, they just became a part of me. When I left college, I got engaged. And because of the sin in that relationship, it fell apart. 
so I picked myself up and I went a few years and met a girl and I really thought that she was the one God wanted me to be with. But because the sin in my relationship with God wasn't exactly where I wanted it to be or where it needed to be, where He wanted it to be, the relationship fell apart again. So after that, it came to a point in time where I moved out of my parents' house and I've been living on my own for about six months. And the, the amazing thing is how much I've learned about the brokenness of my relationship with God in those six months. Because um, I really, truly had no one else to turn to being out there by myself but God. Um, so the weight of all, my, all the sin and my past relationships and growing up I couldn't get rid of and it was weighing really heavy on my shoulders and so the only thing that gave me peace of mind about it all was to be baptized so on March 15th I decided to do that and I was excited about it uh, after a few weeks of that enthusiasm slipping away I found myself trying to fall back into old habits and look for someone or something to fill the void and make me excited and happy about something again. So after I realized that that was happening, I was eating dinner one night at my house by myself and I really felt the need to pray that I needed God. So I just I dropped my fork and and just closed my eyes and started praying, God, I need you. I need you now more than I ever have and I was just meditating on that on those words for a few moments and I had a picture of Jesus sitting across the dinner table for me just pop into my mind and it it broke me it just feels amazing to know that even though things hurt And even though God puts things on your plate to make you deal with things, then he does it because he loves you. And he wants you free from that burden. I started crying and I was just so happy and so thankful that a God so big made himself so small and personal to me. I truly felt loved in that moment. I think the power of the story comes from realizing how obedient I needed to be to God and even though it was so difficult to make the first step and to walk away from things that I know shouldn't be in my life I'm happy that I'm doing it and I think the one thing that I tried to hold on to is that even though those things hurt and even though God puts things on your plate that are very difficult to deal with that ultimately he wants out of your life he does it because he loves you So if you're here today, the point of Jesus rising from dead is not just to give us life. It is to give us life. It's the fact that he inaugurated a kingdom that we get to be a part of. He brought this new power this new that, that was let loose to remake the broken, to heal the disease, to restore those who are lost, 
to put back together pieces that are fragmented that we could never think could ever come back together again. Resurrection is about us experiencing that kind of life in our life daily, more and more all the time. If you're here today and you would describe yourself as having been distant from God, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're not even sure about Jesus, he's pursuing you right now. And maybe you're even sitting here thinking, you know, I, 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 I grew up religious and I've tried to figure out all these rules in the past and it hasn't worked and this whole relationship thing sounds, sounds right. And I want to invite you to accept that today. Accept his gift that he's offering you of forgiveness, of wiping away the shame of you not having to perform for anything, of you just getting to respond with a grateful, free, joyful obedience and get to experience more of his life in yours every day, more of his life in your relationships every day. If you're here today, I want to encourage you to make that decision. If you're not ready for it, then I want to encourage you at least to make the decision to pursue that issue. Because probably if you're not ready for it, you've got all these questions in your mind, all these questions about justice, all these questions that you've got about who Jesus is and these unanswered things, things from your own past. Why this? Why that? You've got all these questions. And the reality is you already know those questions. While they're important to you, they're not really the ultimate answer. And you understand that they're not really the primary question because if God is who He says He is, then you're going to always have questions because He's always going to be bigger and wiser and smarter than you. You already know that the main question you have to answer is the question that's posed today at Resur- at, on Resurrection Sunday. Is He alive? Is He real? Is Jesus who He says He is? Because if He's the Creator, if He's God, then it doesn't matter. All the rest of your questions don't really matter all that much. The only reasonable response to that revelation of Him being real is to surrender your life and follow Him and make Him the leader of your life and let Him answer as many of those questions as He wants to, but to follow Him. And I want to encourage you to do that. If you're here today and you're going, that's me, I think I need to make that decision, then I want to ask you to come and talk to myself or Jeremy after the service and we'd like we'd love to talk with you and pray you but pray with you about that if you're here with any other prayer thing concern going on if you've got sickness if you've got a job decision if you want somebody to pray for you then turn to a friend or or come down and just sit on the front row and somebody will come pray with you after the service because we want to make room for this god who's alive to show up even now through prayer with us and i want to invite you back next sunday as well we're going to start a new series next sunday called the christian disconnect and it's a great one if you're seeking because the, 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 the reality is all of us, whether you're far from God whether you, or whether you've been a follower of God your whole life, we all are so prone to fall prey to disconnecting in some ways from our faith to actually believe but almost live life like we don't believe he's there on a daily basis. And so we're going to have this really encouraging series where we try to go through a number of those areas where we're more prone to lose that connection and how we can encourage one another to stay connected, to reconnect, or to connect for the first time. We'd love to have you join us next week for that. For now, thanks for joining us today. Have a great Easter. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. 
For more information about Quest, who we are, and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. 